Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer, and I'm fortunate enough to be part of the broader climate science community. And I feel really fortunate about that. I'm very thankful to be part of this community. So I decided to celebrate that by letting my colleagues have a chance to uh, talk about their pathways, to talk about their science in an extended kind of long format sense. So I talked to Dr. Alexander Archibald. He's an atmospheric chemist at the University of Cambridge and the Department of Chemistry. And he's interested in chemistry, climate interactions, air pollution, and climate change. Uh, I was really glad he, uh, to have the opportunity to talk with him. He um, hosted the show in his very nice new office. And when I say new, I just mean new as in he's just moved into it. Uh, there in Cambridge, it's kind of in the center of town. Uh, and we had a really nice chat. Yeah, we talked about um, his experience growing up between Europe and Africa, um, the the work that he does both here in Cambridge um, as a theoretical and computational chemist, but also the hands-on work that he does on the FAM aircraft, for example, actually getting up into the sky, not piloting the craft himself, but, you know, getting a craft up into the sky, taking actual measurements of the atmospheric soup of the kind of particles that are floating around there, and what the implic- and then he works out what the implications of some of those might be for climate. Uh, so I'm not going to ramble on very long. I want to keep it kind of brief up top this time. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, you can find Alex Archibald on Twitter. His handle is A-T-A- I shouldn't say it out loud. What am I doing? A Tarchi. So I think it's A T A. You can think of it as A T and then Archie. Look for him that way. <laughs> and then uh, also just his full name, Alexander Archibald. And you can also look up his profile at the University of Cambridge, the Department of Chemistry page, um, where you can learn about the research team that he has there. He's the leader of a research group, and he's also part of Emmanuel College. Uh, one of the colleges of the University of Cambridge. And he has some nice summaries and animations on his website, so I definitely encourage you to go check that out. Uh, okay, yeah, so the uh, we're still running on a two-weekly basis, and uh, yeah, that's it. So let's talk about the chemical soup that is our atmosphere and how it affects the climate, how trees are a part of that, how the biosphere is a part of that. And uh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so really, I'm really glad to be here, and thanks for um, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for letting me use your your office. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah, well, it's the first time I'm using this office too, so uh... <laughs> <laughs> brand new. It's fresh. Yeah, yeah. I like that we rescheduled. You know, I know we had we had something on the books a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. But it was so hot that day. I think we would have been a little miserable, like trying to sit in a, yeah. in a closed off room yeah. and talk. It was just brutally hot that day. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about Cambridge uh, buildings certainly the older ones is that there's no barrier between the outside and the inside so uh, um, when it's cold it's cold when it's hot it's hot yeah and there's not much in the way of climate control you know you can open the windows (laughs) close the windows that's like your options and I guess you get a fan but that's that's about all you can do that's about it yeah yeah Yeah. so what have you been working on like today have you been Moving or this week, you know, you've been moving offices here at yep. Emmanuel College. Yep. yep. So I've, I've recently um, moved offices uh, in college, um, but this week has been catching up on um, project work. Um, so 
um, and preparing for next term. So yeah. come October, yeah. when the students get back, things will really get busy. So the Cambridge terms are crazy, right? There, there are these eight-week terms. That's right. It must be really intense, like for everybody. Yeah. Like I don't know what your undergrad experience was like, but our you know our terms or semesters were more like 15, 16 weeks. You know, you had a long time to you know kind of ingest material. You didn't feel like you were sprinting. That's right. I mean, it's. Um, the the funny thing they do here for for the natural physical scientists who who I lecture they have lectures on Saturdays. Saturdays. Yeah, so they only get one day off a week, which is Sunday, and so then if you imagine that that some of them are also rowing or playing sports, team sports or things like that, they I, I really I really do admire um, them for kind of sticking it out yeah. because I, I just. I kind of look at what they do and I think, geez, that's yeah. that's impressive. It looks exhausting. Yeah. It does, yeah. It's hard to just, you know, keeping up in terms of uh, supervising. But Yeah, I had a, a part three, which is like a mm-hmm. master's level student, and we were talking about this a bit, because yeah. I sometimes, you know, if I have students who are at Cambridge, I kind of mind them a little bit for like, what is yeah. that like? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said that, you know, his first year was very intense because he was trying to do everything. Yeah. But then he realized, like, no, the way you survive this is you just do what you can yeah. and you don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> you know, if you don't get everything done, that's just how it is and you'd have to accept it and move on. That, and just... That's probably a good life lesson as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. There's an upper limit to the amount of stuff you can cram into your life. Exactly. And things are going to fall by, yeah. by the wayside. So yeah, yeah. You will miss deadlines. Yeah. Yeah. Relax. I'm missing one right now. I was supposed to turn in something about a week ago and, oh, right. and it's still just like, nope, I haven't, no. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't done it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, uh, the eight week terms. So during the term, so mm. you're giving lectures. Yep. Are you also doing, do you do the supervision part where you sit down with a small group of students? And yes. Cover? So, so for, for Emma, for Emmanuel College, I'll supervise the first year chemists, the second year chemists. Uh, and then for the Department of Chemistry, I'll supervise third year chemists who study atmospheric chemistry yeah. and fourth year chemists who do a course on um, global change. So that looks at climate change and the ozone layer and, and things like that. Yeah. So going over homework assignments yeah. and just material and you're trying to come up with new questions for them. and That's right, that yeah. Sort of I, I think that's actually one of the hardest uh, challenges um, is examining and uh, trying to come up with interesting new questions which are tractable mm. um, and challenging and... Um, like relevant to what they're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. About. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's... Um, so, I, and I, I think I think that's... It's really key that, you know, when we, we're getting the examining right, you know, um, at the end of the day, that's how we're trying to assess these students through exams. So uh, it's really important. Um, and it is, it is something I, I kind of um, feel is like a real honour as well and, and, a, and a huge responsibility to, to kind of be somebody who is then examining these students and yeah um, yeah yeah that's right no I, I agree with you it, it really it's a it is an honor um and it's a big responsibility and in terms of like the work we do yeah I mean, as scientists we like to think of ourselves as you know making big contributions to the research and hopefully you know hopefully we can here and there we can put our the, the phrase my advisor came up with is you put your pebble on the pile you know yeah. you have your little pebble you put it on the pile and hopefully it adds to something um but in terms of like interacting with students that's potentially going to have 
a bigger impact. You're going to maybe interact with more people and have a more direct impact on more people than you will mm. you know, writing papers and stuff that a uh, half dozen people might read, you know, maybe. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's important. It's important work. Um, and it is something, I think, so in terms of lectures, the students really do like to see something about your research coming through. Yeah. Um, so we're quite lucky. We get quite a, a large number of students taking our third and fourth year courses in atmospheric chemistry and in global change. Um, and I think it's because they, they hear about it on the news, you know, they read about it. Um, I think everybody is, is kind of uh, worried and wants to know more about what they can do in terms of climate change and air pollution. So, so these are really good courses because they kind of provide the students with that physical and chemical underpinning of what, what determines these problems. Um, Do you have an example of how you were able to plug a student into one of these projects and, or how you were able to show them, yeah, here's what's happening right now um, in terms of the research? Well, so every, every year we take on these part three students. So these are basically, Cambridge has a funny naming convention for your progression throughout the years. So when you start your first year, you are a part 1A. Right. In your second year, you're a part 1B. <laughs> And in your third year, you're a part two student. Yeah. Well, you can't make it obvious. Yet. No. <laughs> it needs to be obscure. Uh, obscure. Um, that's right, yeah. So so these part three students are really fourth year undergraduate students, which is kind of uh, nowadays in the UK, your fourth year is a sort of part of an integrated master's, effectively. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, so my lecture course is, is in the third year, and so we get quite a few students who then want to do research projects with our with our group for their fourth year, their part three. Yeah. Um, and we've been really lucky, actually. We've had some really good students that we've been able to publish uh, work on quite, quite quickly. Basically, um, I've been really fortunate enough to almost have to just cut and paste their reports, <laughs> you know, reformat them. Yeah. And so recently we've had two nice um, bits of work which have come out of these projects. So one was a, a sort of um, uh, an assessment on the human health impacts of air pollution. So if you kind of pick up the paper or, or look on Reddit or whatever yeah, your favourite... I, I can link it up, yeah, I can, yeah. I can put it, yeah. Um, the, the, the student uh, was, was basically tasked with trying to calculate what would have happened if we didn't regulate air pollution. Okay, yeah. Like so, a, what is the world that we've avoided? <laughs> a completely laissez-faire yeah. <laughs> situation. Yeah, right? so, yeah. so I don't know um, if you've watched the film Anchorman. Uh, oh, it's been a while. It's yeah, a while. okay. Yeah. Well, so Anchorman is set in the 1970s. Yeah. And one of the scenes that really, you know, made me chuckle was how um, this news crew were just walking around, eating and throwing their trash. Oh, right. You know, it was... Yeah. And that was... And it's, you know... As far as I can tell, that was part of the lifestyle of the 70s. You know, the earth is like a, a dustbin. You can mm -hmm. just throw stuff, dump it in the ocean, whatever. And and if you look at the emissions per capita um, in the 1970s, they were really high, actually, mm -hmm. particularly for air pollutants. Um, and so when when I say really high, I mean really high in, in places like Europe and North America. Um, and... What we wanted to know then is, well, what if we just continued to, to 
to act that way. Right. You know, the population has grown since the 1970s significantly. Um, so in Europe and North America, what would have happened if we just did business as usual? <laughs> um, and that's where kind of numerical modeling is a, is a really powerful tool because yeah. it kind of enables you to, to quantify these what-if <laughs> hypotheses or, or questions. You know, what if we had this um, business as usual world? And so... Uh, the sort of the bottom line from that student's work was that we calculated that um, because of um, air pollution control reductions, improvements in technology, um, because of where we are now with air pollution, which isn't great, but we have saved about half a million premature lives lost per year. Yeah. So, so that's significant, you know, and I, I think there, there's a lot of negativity about air pollution um, and um, and we still have a lot more to do, yeah. but we have done a lot. We do know what to do, yeah. you know, um, we just need to kind of carry on the fight against uh, emissions, really. That's good. Yeah, that's a healthy healthy perspective. Yeah. And it reminds me of some stuff I saw kind of on Science Twitter recently where, um, I don't remember where it was, but this news article came out that was kind of defeatist on climate change in general. And mm. the, the, the headline was kind of something like, well, it's, it just, it's over, just forget it. And a lot of um, you know, climate scientists right, you know, correctly you know, responded and said, no, no, you don't understand how bad it can get. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't know if we really, really do just keep burning all the fossil fuels that we can. Yeah. No, no, that's way, way above two degrees. Like that's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just for, for, there's definitely still, it's definitely still worthwhile even if we you know fail and miss the Paris targets, well, yeah. that's not great. But that doesn't mean we should give up. Like no. we should just you know keep trying because um, yeah, it can get much much worse. So I like that. I like that perspective of you know just compare it to where you you could have been. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, and that was also motivated by work that um, my my postdoc mentor John Pyle had done to look at the stratospheric ozone layer. Yeah. Uh, and and the Montreal Protocol, which controls the emissions of compounds that destroy ozone in the upper atmosphere in the stratosphere, has you know has been widely you know um, regarded as the most successful environmental treaty. Yeah. Um, and it was quick. Uh, yeah, it was quick. Ways. People people came uh, to agreement very quickly. Um, what's really interesting, though, is over the, the last five years or so, it looks like there have been illegal emissions of these compounds. And, and this is really creating um, a huge, um, I guess, diplomatic issue yeah. uh, and, and potentially, you know, is it extending this um, period where we, we have these ozone holes and... Um, I heard a little bit. What do we know about this? Do, can people do it? Do we even have a broad sense of where it's coming from? Yeah. Or? So, so um, it's again. This is where I, you know, I, I find numerical models are just so powerful, um, and so we can take observations of these compounds, which are made um, in um, labs uh, around the world. They have very long lifetimes, but we can so so lifetimes of like fifty years or so in the atmosphere. So, and what that means is it takes about 50 years for their concentrations to, to have. Um, but um, we, can, we can take those observations and we can use models which tell us about where the wind has come from. Uh, and so we can kind of piece together where these um, observations show that the uh, concentrations are high, 
we can run back and find out where the the source of the the um, the emissions were. Yeah. And so you can you can broadly see that the, that the emissions are coming from East Asia. Mm. And uh, I think um, there's a there's a lot of work on at the moment in 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 my group as well, trying to really narrow down uh, and and kind of work out the exact locations of where mm. these emissions are from. Yeah, and I wonder what happens next if you do narrow it down. Yeah. Know, where, where does that where does that lead? Yeah, well, as as far as I understand, at the moment there's um, there has been some whistleblowing of um, companies that have been using these compounds in in China. Mm-hmm. So we sort of know, at least from whistleblowers, that there have been um, illegal uses. Um, the yeah, the thing is that these compounds that were produced, um, chlorofluorocarbons, they have really good physical properties. So they are some of the best refrigerants and coolants mm. and they're really good for for the manufacture of foam i mean we're sat on chairs which have some artificial foam in them right. and to make that they're, they're kind of used in that process um it's too bad really. it is <laughs> yeah chemically unfortunate yeah yeah the uh it, what's interesting as well the guy that invented the cfc's is a, a guy that worked i think at dupont um, but he's also the guy that invented uh, leaded petrol. Right. So, you know, one person responsible for two big environmental uh, disasters. Gosh. Is this person still around? Or is it, I, don't, uh, I don't know if he is. Sure. I think his name was Thomas Midgley. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, oh, man. Yeah. I can't imagine sitting around with that on your shoulders. I don't know. That yeah, no, that would conscience. be... T- I, but, you know, I mean, in fairness to him, I guess if you're given a brief of make a, a good molecule which does you know has these properties yeah. well he aced it he did yeah. he made some really good uh, additives to petrol which stopped knocking yeah and you know and there's no way he would have been known the health no. and climate you know no. implications of these no, things no absolutely not, not. Yeah. yeah but i think we've learned though from from those um experiences now to to question a bit more the well what if what is the potential life cycle effects and and that's something as well so with recent part three students we we produced a study which i think is still the first of its kind to say well in terms of fracking in the uk what if what if we follow america you know what if we just go all out right there's a lot of controversy about it um, uh, and again, I think it's really important to kind of ask some of these questions and try and come up with some quantification. Yeah, to see beyond the immediate like, exactly. short-term gains yeah. and say, okay, but what is this actually going to do to, you know, our environmental conditions and drinking water and yeah. exactly, yeah. And so we focused more on um, the air pollution side of things because mm-hmm. that's the sort of modelling that we do. But but I th- I think I think we've learned a lot from these mistakes. I think often in life. We don't tend to learn from our mistakes, but I think life cycle analysis is something that's more at the front of people's minds now. How far up does that learning go, though, is the question. Does it extend all the way to actual, you know, policy? And things? Yeah. Or are we just sitting yeah. here in Cambridge going, yeah, that's going to be bad? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, I think um, we are lucky in Cambridge that we do have some interactions with policy makers so yeah. the cambridge science science and policy yeah um uh, organization kind of try and bring in people that work in policy making and and help them interact with scientists and uh, i think that's really good yeah 
One of the things so that you know you talked about numerical models, and that's a big part of uh, what I do. And I think one of the things that's neat about the way that you work is that you also do some observational mm. work as well. That you yeah. can. Do we want to talk about the sure. the aircraft? Because you've actually you know gone on a plane that's been specially fitted, yeah. you know, with lots of different detectors and you know sensors and measurement devices and. Uh, the, the FAM aircraft, the UK FAM aircraft. Yeah, so so it's it really is um, a a unique tool that we have this flying laboratory. So, I mean, if you kind of picture in your mind an easy jet sort of or Ryanair sort of sized uh, aircraft that's been slightly squashed, so it's a bit fatter, a bit shorter, um, and then has been completely overhauled. So, so rather than lottery tickets and um, hot bacon sandwiches, um, it's kind of packed with, uh, and grumpy travellers, it's packed with scientists who are very keen to make observations <laughs> of the physical state of the atmosphere uh, and its composition. Yeah. So, um, Was it especially built for, it, or it, is it repurposed? It, it's repurposed. Okay, so, yeah. so there are, it's based on... Um, uh, uh, an aircraft which is still in commercial um, service so um, it was kind of designed as a city hopper um, mm. and this has been this was the the actual first prototype of that aircraft oh, okay so this is the the original um, um, 146 BAE mm. 146 um, which I think is also basically related to what's called a RJ45 I think Um when you start working with the aircraft, you realise that there are some people who are very, very keen on the history of <laughs> aircraft. And if you don't know the right words, then... Um, they'll fill you in. They'll fill you in, or yeah. they'll, they'll jump all over you if you get the slightly <laughs> like, the wrong... Like, no, that's the RAM-12, not the RAM-13. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so obvious. Look at the, yeah. look look at the, the nose. Fan. It's right, yeah, it's that's right, right there. Yeah, How could yeah. you miss this? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's like train enthusiasts too. There are lots it, of train enthusiasts yeah, yeah, in the yeah, UK who yeah. like know everything about. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a double bogey. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a remarkable um, um, laboratory. So it has these probes uh, on the wings, which enable it to measure sort of aerosols, um, and uh, there are lots of basically holes which have been drilled out uh, of the through the cabin yeah. um, to then sample the the outside air uh, and believe me there's a huge amount of um, work that goes on in in doing something like that to test the fluid dynamics to make sure that you don't just suck air that's coming off the aircraft itself that you're sucking outside air yeah. to make sure that you're not adding too much drag um, and to quantify how much drag you're you're adding to the aircraft, um, and there's a huge big team. So when we take the aircraft and and fly it around to 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 make these observations of the atmosphere, um, there's a huge team of people that are involved in planning the the, the flights to make sure that air traffic control know where we are, um, calculating how much fuel we should be using, yeah. uh, you know, all these sorts of things. So. So my first experience, you know, I really was um, in over my head and lucky. I worked with some really great people. Um, James Lee in particular, who's a professor in, in York, has um, really, you know, helped kind of make the, the flights that we're, we're doing as part of um, our research really successful. Um, and um, 
you know, it, it is, it's beyond us, though. It's, it's a big team of people. Um, uh, the pilots are really great. A lot of them are all ex special forces or mm. you know they used to fly the queen around right. or vips in the yeah. military so do you have a couple of pilots i have a couple of pilots I'm, like a... I, I'm then sat in the middle between the two pilots mm. the pilot and the co-pilot uh, and then that's the position for the the mission scientist so who has sort of overall responsibility for um what we're doing scientifically yeah and then we have um, typically, if, if we're on the campaigns that we do, so we are interested in understanding how the composition of the atmosphere is changing over the North Atlantic. So we generally fly from the UK to Portugal, Portugal to the Azores, the Azores to Ireland, and sort of sample that, that part of the North Atlantic atmosphere. And we'll take about 18 people with us on board mm. as well. So, okay. so lots of scientists... Uh, and then lots of uh, technicians as well. Right. I mean, if the aircraft has a problem uh, in the Azores, we need skilled people to, to fix it. Yeah, um, so you've got a, an airplane like mechanic who can work on the, Absolutely. You know, and you also probably have folks who know a lot about the instruments because, yep. like, and how to repair them and fix them up. Because yep. that's, that's one thing that I don't think everyone's aware of is, like, you know, scientists, they might get to know, if, if they use a piece of kit a lot, like a piece of equipment, they might get to know that reasonably well mm. but they're not going to know everything about every piece of equipment on oh. the aircraft and you need somebody who who knows them all well enough to fix them yeah <laughs> who, who doesn't necessarily need to know about how to use all of them scientifically but how to like yeah oh this is now giving garbage results how do i recalibrate this properly and yeah so so those folks too yeah and so so there are a number of people that that work for for um fam the um who who are kind of tasked with that sort of job pre pre-flighting so sort of getting the instruments up and running before the beginning of um, a, a flight um, and then we'll have also then the dedicated instrument scientists who are kind of really um, making sure that the data that's coming out of the instruments is top quality yeah um, yeah so so it's it's um it's really interesting you, you you sort of learn a lot as well about how how difficult it is to measure what's in the atmosphere because <laughs> You kind of look around and, you know, well, it's very difficult to, to even, like, see the, you know, the gases that are in the atmosphere. Like, you know... The, Pretty the, much impossible for most of it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they, they're not... Unless you're in um, downtown LA or Beijing yeah. or, or, or New Delhi... You can move your hand around and feel them a little bit. But yeah. That, that doesn't help you out that much. No. <laughs> but then there is, there is this wide, you know, probably millions of difference of compounds that we're, we're breathing in. Um, and most of them are just nitrogen and oxygen, you know, 99.99%. Yeah. But then um, some of the, the really potentially harmful ones are present at really minuscule amounts, like one part in a trillion. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, just that is like finding a needle in a haystack. Probably harder. How do you how do you measure at that level? Like you, you're using some spectroscopy, or how do you? So like... so yeah, there are different techniques, and and this is where also like with the aircraft, you kind of see the complementary nature. I always think about it as like the the atmosphere is a is a soup, uh, and whenever you've had soup, what you're really trying to work out is how many oregano um, sprigs did somebody put into this soup. <laughs> And so if you imagine then, you know, if that soup is, you know, um, 
several litres of soup, yeah. you know, then it becomes a really challenging task. So you, you know? need to strain it somehow. <laughs> That's you need right. To, yeah, you need to <laughs> separate it by weight. And yeah, well, so you come up with all these different techniques, mm-hmm. and, 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 and there is no one technique which works perfectly for every different compound that's present yeah so we have instruments which are basically trying to measure the the masses of compounds so mass spectrometers um and then instruments which are using a technique called spectroscopy which uh measures the sort of the chemical fingerprint of the the molecule so different molecules absorb and interact with light differently so we can just measure how the the light changes when we sample air through through an instrument to uh, to quantify how how much of the different compounds there are. Yeah, you can shine some light through it and see yeah. which wavelengths get absorbed. That's right. Which wavelengths are being emitted? Yeah. And so um, so one of the the challenges so there's this uh, equation called the Beer Lambert law, which um, you know, a lot of people possibly even meet in high school and and, and places like this, and certainly in in undergraduate physics and chemistry degrees uh, and so there's a there's a problem in that equation which is uh, one of the one of the factors in that equation is the, the the path length that you're shining light through so if you can imagine on an aircraft you're kind of probably limited to something which is about half a meter mm. by half a meter in space so you're shining so if you're shining a photons. laser beam of uh, some photons along that sort of distance that means that you need things which have very big um, absorbing areas to actually detect a change in the intensity of your photons. Mm, Or you need a very good photon detector that can detect like one photon, (laughs) which is very difficult. So, So the way that they get around that is by actually using mirrors to then bounce the light back and forward. Yeah. So rather than having a half a meter long laser, laser light path, you can actually create something which is about 30 kilometers long. <laughs> and then at 30 kilometers of laser path, you can, you can really start to detect things which are present in very small amounts. Yeah, even on a moving aircraft. Even on a moving yeah. aircraft, yeah. Well, and one of the big challenges that we faced recently with one of these instruments is that when cabin pressure, air pressure changes and in your ears start to, to, to pop, the, the instrument itself has a, a bit of flex in it, which means that the, the laser optics, the, um, the, the light that's beaming, uh, bouncing between these two mirrors, slightly misaligns and you start to get weird fringes and uh, starts to interfere with itself with itself yeah yeah yeah. so uh, really a a real nightmare actually so what do you have to do do you have to just so you know there are ideas about trying to pressure control the instrument so basically build a box around it to keep it at constant pressure um you know there are fancy mathematical techniques to try and (laughs) work out the the noise and, and oh, remove the noise after so. the fact like you've got noisy data yeah you're stuck with it now what are you going to do that's right mathematics yeah. to the rescue hopefully you can hopefully correct for that yeah because you know something about the way that it's messed up that's like, right you know, yeah well it's messed up but we know how it's messed up so we can hopefully back yeah out and correct for that I, I mean that's you know unfortunately things do go wrong and particularly in terms of um satellites once a satellite is up 
and something goes wrong, well, you've got to live with that yep. and just work a way around it. So Yeah, or uh, if it's Hubble, if it's expensive enough, you send another mission up to go <laughs> yeah. fix it. <laughs> if we spend enough money on it already, that another shuttle mission is like, well, it's worth it. It's good. Yeah. And then you do that. Yeah. Maybe it's harder to motivate those these days. I feel like maybe these days we would just throw up another one. Like, well, we'll try again later. I don't know. I, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but that's just my feeling of, like, could we still, you know, have a, a mission that's specifically sent up to space to repair a satellite? But uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it, it depends on... So so if we take, like, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be, like, revolutionary for the field of uh, exoplanetary science yeah. in particular, um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like there's so much invested in that that if something went wrong we would try and uh, fix it if it was possible yeah yeah um but but you're right like for some instruments you know if if crap goes wrong then yeah to get back to my students advice you know you just do the best you can yeah not everything's going to work you know you just have to accept it (laughs) and live with it which i imagine for the folks like let's say you're a project scientist and uh, on something that big, I mean, that must be really difficult to take. But yeah. even even those folks, you know, they have to just like, well, we did everything we could and That's right. something still went wrong. And yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, you must use a lot of satellite data too because I imagine there's a ton that you can learn about atmospheric chemistry yeah. from satellite data. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And so we, we're really lucky that there are um, a whole new um, series of satellite missions um, which are starting and so one one which has kind of already started Tropomi has made the news recently um, it's sort of unprecedented resolution imaging of of a number of really important atmospheric uh, compounds which are, are important for air quality and human health so so I think, yeah, I think that'll be quite a game changer. I, I, I mean, one of the big challenges that we're getting into with models and with data is is the volume. Yeah. And, and this is where, like, data science and, and um, approaches, techniques that are used in data science, I think, are becoming more and more important in in atmospheric sciences. Mm-hmm. Figuring uh, out smart but somewhat automated ways to pull useful information out yeah. of huge data sets yeah. yeah, to flag up interesting bits that you might want to look at. That's right. Find patterns. Yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of people who work with uh, remote sensing data have huge experience with dealing with terabyte data sets. But then, you know, those are sort of limited to one variable. Mm. And the problem that we're facing, particularly with models like the, the UK Earth System model who, who, um, that's used in my group, is you have thousands of variables to look at and terabytes for each variable. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah. daunting. I, uh, you know, full confession, I sort of stole your figure where you had three different circles showing the size of the CMIP data sets. Oh, know, yeah. Like, <laughs> and the area is proportional to the, yeah. you know, the size. Yeah. And the first two circles are big. Yeah. And then the third one doesn't fit on the page, basically. That's right. Just, <laughs> just, yeah, no. It's, it 90, it, 90,000 terabytes, I think, is the, you know, that, that order of magnitude is for the next CMIP model output yeah. you know, data set. Like, I, I think it's, uh, to be honest, it, it really is um, unknown. It, yeah. It really, I mean, it, I, I, I fear it will hit petabytes um, yeah. <laughs> of data. Um, we're gonna have to learn new prefixes. Go look up the new prefix. Yeah, for ever yeah. larger increasing volumes of data. I mean, it's it, it's important though, you know. So I, I think 
think it's, it's, it's important to know that it's not just random numbers that are being generated. And I think we will learn a lot from these data as well. Um, for sure, we just need tools to be able to grapple with that much yeah, data. Yeah, I think so. So you know, some of the some of the the highlight results probably won't change and, and haven't changed for the last fifteen years. What's really nice, Gavin Schmidt, who's a who's a really good um, uh, communicator of science and a really great scientist at, at the the NASA. I think it's at Goddard, um, has shown at least I've seen on Twitter uh, comparisons of projections for climate change um, uh, produced about 20 years ago and current observations showing that, you know, actually we've, we've got quite a lot of skill at predicting global mean average surface temperature yeah. changes. Put more CO2 in the atmosphere, you get yeah. more energy down here. Yeah, it's like a blanket, you know, if you put a thicker blanket on, you get warmer, Yeah, effectively. We're but, good at thermodynamics. We yeah, thermodynamics. so that's it, yeah. The, the, the models don't break the laws of thermodynamics, and yes. neither does the planet. Yeah. But then there are lots of other things where we kind of do need couplings and interactions between the ocean carbon cycle, or the ocean biogeochemistry, atmospheric chemistry... Because there are a number of other questions that are really important to, to understand how changes in emissions and population um, will will affect the future. Yeah, like how how is the carbon that we're emitting getting partitioned between the ocean and the land and the atmosphere? You know, how much is getting sucked, yeah. you know, absorbed by the ocean and sequestered in the deep interior? Yeah. You know, how much of it is going into growing new forests and, you know, and uh, yeah, that that balance is going to be super important because it's the amount of carbon in the atmosphere that determines you know the radiative extra energy that we get down here at the surface. Sure. Um, and the uh, yeah the uh, that kind of gets to me. Uh, this might be a slightly weird question to ask, but I think you'll know where I'm going. Like in terms of climate science, and we already said a few words about it. Do you think we're likely to see any big revelations, huge changes over the next you know ten, fifteen years, or is it you know, more likely that we will, that we have the basic picture in place and that we're going to make small adjustments to it. Uh, I guess it depends on what, what you think of as big and small, but I'll let you define that kind of however yeah. you want to. So, I mean, I, I think the, the fundamental um, role of, of carbon dioxide and long-lived greenhouse gases is, um, is so well established that it's unlikely that there are going to be yeah. big surprises. That's, that's Victorian era science that we've known and yeah. confirmed over and over again. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, there remain um, uncertainties. So uh, there's, a, there's a metric called climate sensitivity, which, which really is it's the sensitivity that the, the, you know, the climate has to changes in CO2. And, and that, that does have uncertainty on it. But we know it's a positive number, so we know, we know that if you add more CO two, climate goes warmer. Yes. Or, or yeah. The climate increase, the temperature of the Earth increases. But um, the, there are a number of sort of feedback processes which haven't been included in models before, where I think we might see some surprising features. Yeah. So feedback like where, oh well, if we increase temperatures here the 
ice sheets around mm-hmm. Antarctica will change in this way and that will have this effect on the sea level. And yeah, and I, I think, so there are still uncertainties and, and one of the, the big challenges we face is the resolution that we try and model these physical processes. So, you know, ice sheet and sea ice, you know, uh, there are processes which are really important, which happen at the sub-grid scale, so smaller than the, the size of the boxes which you, you use to represent these um these these things but um there are also processes which we haven't really coupled before and and that's as an atmospheric chemist where i'm i'm really excited so we haven't really coupled um atmospheric chemistry aerosols and clouds um with the the emissions of the sort of key precursors from um from the biosphere before and so, um, and, and that's what the next IPCC will include is models that, that do that. And, and from our initial work with the, with the Met Office, we do see that there are some, you know, interesting sensitivities um, when you do start to couple the whole mm. system. Could you say more about what's a precursor from the biosphere? Yeah, so, so basically, um, I mean, w- one of the things I really um, am fascinated by is how plants and trees affect climate. Um, and you'll know that like they, they breathe in CO2, they breathe out oxygen, so they help us have a habitable climate. But um, if, you have a, um, if you have a car and you park under a tree, um, you'll start to kind of see that you know, trees also emit lots of other things than, than oxygen and water vapour. Um, particularly, you know, some trees, if you park under them, you'll come back and your windscreen will be full of sticky mm. residue. Yeah. Um, you also know if you go for a walk, you know, through a through a forest, you, you know, if you smell the air, it smells very different to the air if you were to smell it in a desert, <laughs> you know. And that's because the, the trees are signalling to each other, they're sending out compounds which say, hey, bees, you know, come and pollinate me. Mm. Or... Um, there are a bunch of other reasons that they're sending out wow. these compounds, they and so signal to each other. That's that's interesting. Yeah, so, so talk to each other. Well, <laughs> and, and there are a number of um, like fruiting trees that have evolved to give out compounds which ripen fruit early before they fruit, so that the that basically their um, uh, neighboring trees um, will will have lots of ripe fruit. Um, by the time that they start to put their fruit out, so that any insects or or, or fruit eating animals will go to the ripe fruit. Um, so, I mean, that's certainly the theory. You know, it might just be that the uh, biological clocks are staggered. But it's devious. Like, yeah, no, 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 go over there. Yeah, well, there's fruit. Hey, look at that. There's some fruit on the tree. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think plants. You know, maybe they're not sentient, but they mm. uh, they they're clever. Can they send distress signals? To, I've heard a little bit yeah, about like yeah. grass. If you're cutting grass, yeah. it's sending like a distress signal to the nearby grass. Yeah. Like, something's going on. Yeah. Well, and, and again, like so, we have we've got mass spectrometers on the aircraft and spectroscopy instruments, but our, our nose is a is a you know is a very powerful chemical sensor, yeah. and that smell of um, of cut grass, you know, is full of chemical compounds which which then do something in the atmosphere. Right. The reason you smell them is because they're gases. Yeah. So they, they transform, they, they make um, other compounds. And, um, and they can go on to have some impacts in, in terms of climate? They can, yeah. So uh, the main way that they do that is by making tiny particles called aerosols. Um, 
And so, um, yeah, it's it's quite fascinating. It looks like um, trees like pine trees, but, but also trees like uh, uh, oak trees um, can emit these precursors to these particles. Um, and then these particles, when they're in the atmosphere, they can kind of get... Um, uh, hydrated by water and grow into cloud cloud condensation nuclei and cloud droplets and so mm. form clouds basically and then then you there's a there's a you know a nice feedback there so when it's sunny um, the plants are photosynthesizing a lot and these compounds uh, are produced as a byproduct of photosynthesis so most of the photosynthesis is making oxygen and then a small amount is making these terpenes and, and hemiterpenes uh, and then they, those are going out and then they're being oxidized forming aerosols and then clouds and then so the clouds then come hmm. and you know acts as a regulator tells the the tree to stop hmm. uh, emitting so many because it's cool it's because it's cooler it. that's yeah. right yeah you know well you know when it when it's cloudy it is much cooler yeah. at the surface so <laughs> So that's the sort of, you know, and then that's a closed loop cycle. Yeah. Um, and with, it's happening on a big enough scale, it can actually have an impact on how much radiative energy is down here. Yeah, well, that's so, the question. And that's the question is like mm-hmm. how, you know, you, you can draw these connections. And this is where I think we need more observations to, to establish the, the size of these connections. Uh, and this is where the modelling that we will be doing as part of the next IPCC assessment will at least put some model numbers on this for the yes. first time. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's going to be important to understand it. It's not likely to drastically change all of climate science, right? No. But it's going to help us get better, um, smaller error bars, and you know, ho- hopefully understand the system yeah. as a whole entity better yeah and and be able to make better forecasts about what it's going to do in the future and 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 also make better um decisions about what we can do to to mitigate different things you you know if you don't know that trees play an important role in the climate system and you decide oh well the best thing we should do is put trees everywhere Hmm. and actually they have some (laughs) negative impact well you know then then you're doing the wrong thing yeah um (laughs) Is there um, that, that's that was awesome. Thanks. That was really a cool uh, a cool connection that I hadn't thought much about before. Yeah. You know, being mostly an oceanographer. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Know, I just uh, there there are cool you know bio, biological you know processes and things in the ocean. Oh yeah. As well, but um, yeah, but that was a treat to get to think about it, but just from a totally different angle. Yeah. And um, yeah. So the. So that's work that you're also kind of mm-hmm. involved with, and you're hoping to get some of these mm-hmm. processes incorporated into the model suites that will end up in the kind of next generation of climate models. And, yeah, you know. so so a lot of the processes are already sort of in there um, for the first time, and I've got a new PhD student starting in October, James Weber, and he's going to be looking at um, at some of these. And and I think you know we're at a, a great age where new ideas are coming up on how to to parameterize these processes um and i think there's lots of interesting experiments that hopefully he's gonna gonna play around with nice yeah is there a part of the whole climate system and this could be scientific or political or wherever you want to go with this Mm. is there a part of climate that's not being talked about enough that you would like to hear more more noise or you'd like to hear more of uh you'd like to see it like a more present in the 
discussions that we're all having about you know the climate as uh, climate science itself or the climate policy interface or you know what individuals can do mm. it's a pretty open question but kind of you know if anything strikes you and you don't have to have like an, yeah. an amazing answer but if there's just something that you want to see well out there a little bit more i, I think I, th- I think for me it still comes back to um i i think clearly it would be good to have more involvement of communities in um making decisions like i i think to some extent if the decisions are all being made at a very high level you know at a national level there's such latency or stagnation and i mean look at brexit you know you know do i have to (laughs) (laughs) no but you know so and and that's something that requires urgency Mm -hmm. and, and and you know you know climate requires urgency as well but slightly probably a, a less of a, a rate than than this and, yeah. and that's just a nightmare so yeah. so i think if we could devolve power more regionally um i think you could start to see people having a bigger impact i think because i think mm. as an individual there's a lot you can do um i know it's your um using your keep cup to try and reduce oh. your your plastic <laughs> waste um and you know, you can go to your energy suppliers and, and try and get green energy. But but I think um, we can probably do more at a community level than we yeah. probably are doing. Uh, I like that. And it reminds me of, um, I had an opportunity at the beginning of the year to visit Avonmouth right outside of Bristol. Oh, right. Yeah. And this was something that um, the Royal Metsuk has, <coughs> has had this climate science communication project that's right. running now. Okay. And uh, they um, basically set up some of these small events where you would go to a community mm. and just talk about climate with like a small group of local folks, mm. and, and that was really interesting. You know, we just sat around and only six people came, but it, you know, even there's a small place anyway. Yeah, yeah. It was good to have you know that number, and um, yeah, I, it was interesting to see that um, for a lot of folks, you know, the idea of climate and the idea of environment. And th- those are very mixed up into like one thing, you know, they think of like, um, air quality yeah. is like equivalent to the climate and they're certainly connected. Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, they are, they yeah. are connected for sure, but it's the, the emphasis is slightly different. It's like, well, um, yeah, we need to think about, it's not just replacing this chemical with another one. It's like, we need a total shift of the whole energy system. Yeah. Um, but no, it was, uh, there were, were folks there who, there was a whole spectrum of, of, of people and I, I did get a real sense that like it was a good, valuable thing to do is really, that's mm. what I'm trying to get across. I don't yeah, know if yeah. I'm getting that across very well, but it was, it felt really valuable and I wonder like, I think you're right, we probably, we should be spending more of our time doing that mm. and maybe we should have that as an explicit part of our kind of outreach is like go to small places, go, you know, step outside of Cambridge and like have meetings with small groups of people, just make ourselves available. Yeah. And I think, well, to some extent, Twitter and can, can do that a little bit. You know, we can make ourselves more available and make ourselves like, yeah, f- come ask us questions. We'll f- mm-hmm. If we're not the expert, we can find you the expert. Or if you just want to have a chat about it, you know, we, we, we should make, make ourselves available for that. Um, so maybe we need a small, you know, a tiny army of, of like, you know, folks who are knowledgeable on climate and can go out and do these kind of engagement, you know, workshops. Yeah, and, yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I think I, I was coming more at it from a, a point where I'd like to see councils uh, and 
you know, constituencies taking a, a bigger role in the fight. Right, right. And, and I, think, I think that's where I see um, there potentially being uh, Im- impact um, on a shorter time scale. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, a council can, can, you know, well, and it, councils do very radically change the way that garbage is collected, for yeah. example. Yeah. Um, and that has huge impact, mm-hmm. you know. Um, councils could decide, right, no, we're just going to put everything in landfill, and that would have a devastating impact on uh, recycling. Yeah, yeah. Because you would rely on your people, your your constituents, to do their own recycling. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you say you're having a, a a black waste bin as we do for general waste, that's going to be emptied once a fortnight. And you have a green bin for organics and a blue bin for all of the recyclables. Mm. Your yeah. recycling rate, in you know, shoots up by orders of magnitude. Yeah, right? yeah, it, uh, yeah. So to hopefully, to connect with what you're saying, yeah, I guess hopefully you go out and engage with the you know the constituents with the people who are voting, and hopefully yeah. they can reflect that. Hopefully they can push that. Yeah. You know, to the yeah. you know, individual councils and to make uh, local decisions. Um, it's hard though, right? Because people, the constituents are busy and they've got busy lives and they don't, they, they don't, um, necessarily have a lot of time and energy to focus on no, individual things like this. And that, and that was, um, that was, there, there was one woman there who, um, I think she had been kind of a bit turned off from the negativity that she had perceived in the climate debate. And that yeah. was sort of unfortunate that like enough noise had been kicked up yeah. that she sort of heard that and went, well, that's too, that's too noisy for me. I don't know how to sort that out. Yeah. And that kind of, uh, did, yeah, she felt a bit disengaged with the whole yeah. you know, climate environment process. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I, you know, so you're not going to solve the plastic problem in the ocean by not drinking with plastic straws. Yeah. But you are going to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's the, that's the key thing is to remember that individual action is not, you know, a wasted uh, option. Yeah. You know, if, if every individual... M- you know, lived as sustainably as they could do, we wouldn't really have a problem at all. Yeah. So for, yeah. for the for the lady that you talk about, I'd say, you know, the what she needs to feel is empowered that she has some options. Yeah. And I think it's on the institutes that, you know, uh we we choose to uh, and elect to to lead our um you know places of work and and uh our, you know our places of home to to take a bit more leadership uh and and we need to to tell them what we want really i guess yeah, yeah which is where sure which is where you're right that we we as scientists can can help by providing more information and and i hope i hope the general public don't feel like they don't need experts anymore i think that was one of the scary things in the last um sort of big election yeah that was scary. Yeah. This yeah. uh, Michael Gove character. Right? Yeah. Saying, like, <laughs> yeah. People are tired of experts. Really? You, you're tired of like knowing stuff <laughs> about how the world works? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that yeah. is scary. Because if you really do take that, that view, then you're just totally unmoored from reality. Like, you don't have any real information about anything. Yeah. And that feels terrifying to me. That feels like you're adrift on the sea without a motor, like, without a propeller. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, it's important. I guess it's another thing we can push for is like 
the the value of having real information, the value of having you know logical arguments. Like that's that's what I want to see. Sure. That's what, and I think it's it's probably easy for us, given we're you know the people we work with and the people we probably hang out with. It's probably easy for us to go. Doesn't everybody want that? Doesn't every? Like, I thought that was what we were all doing. Yeah. And to maybe it's harder for us to see things from the perspective of someone who's exhausted and working all the time yeah. and broke and just you know like just just tired maybe. I mean maybe maybe I'm sure I'm overgeneralizing, but I think what I'm trying to do is like, um, what is it? You know what do things look like mm. to the folks who are maybe feeling like they don't they don't respond to the idea of doing something for the environment or the folks who are worried about, you know, doing something for climate change. What do you think they're worried about or what do you think they're coming from? And this is a super hard question. So don't feel mm. pressure to like, you know, have an amazing answer. I'm, I'm here with you. We can yeah, try yeah, to yeah. like, cause this is something I've been grappling with as, as well of like, you know, those folks who feel worried about, um, doing something about climate and the environment. What, what is it that's holding them back and what is their feeling of like, where where is that coming from? And is there anything that we can do to kind of to kind of help and to um, to kind of um, give them a way in to make them feel like no this this has to be something that we can all do together. This is a a project that we can do together, and it would be good for everyone and good for our kids and good yeah. for prosperity. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of it is probably embroiled in the fact that people don't like change. You know, generally speaking, yeah. you know, it can be scary. Yeah, yeah, change is scary. Um, I think another thing is the problem is so big and so potentially devastating and so intrinsically linked to all of us. So, so it's not like the threat of nuclear warfare where you couldn't do anything. No, you know, there's, but whereas this, you know, this sort of potential Armageddon of climate change and and you are slowly you know, adding, you know, um, uh, adding to the problem. But at the same time, it feels like, well, you know, I, I can't... I, th- I think often people, when, the, when a problem is really daunting, you're kind of left with thinking, well, there are limits to this problem. Uh, and, and one limit is I live in a cave and I eat berries <laughs> and, and I have no impact. And the other limit is, well, I just do what I'm doing, right? Uh, There's a black and white yeah, way to paint uh, it. And, and it's like, well, I, I certainly do not want to go and live in a cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, well, so there you go. I, I can't do anything, <laughs> you know. So the middle ground gets lost yeah, in, that, that's in that right. kind of black and white thinking. That's yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that happens with politics as well. You know, just generally, you know, people yeah. get very stuck into this binary decision. Yeah. What am I going to do? I'm going to go with the jobs or no jobs, you know. It's literally what, what our brains do. Yeah, they categorize yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. They go, good, bad, yes, yeah. no. <laughs> like, that's what our brains yeah, are yeah. trying to do all the time. Absolutely. All day long. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. Oh, it, it takes real, like, it takes a lot of work and it takes to get in the habit of, like, being comfortable with that middle ground and absolutely. being comfortable with the, like, no, we don't have to have a yes, no. We don't have to have a binary. We can live in this middle space where, yeah. you know, we... Uh, can be comfortable with the ambiguity of yeah. you know is uh, should I feel bad about getting this water bottle or not you know yeah. like um, just for an example to, to to try to come up with one you know what 
yeah, I've got my keep cup. There are times when I buy the water bottle when I'm like out yeah, and I'm yeah. like, I'm thirsty. I don't have my bottle. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to buy a water bottle if I'm like really, you know, if I'm thirsty. And if, yeah, yeah. especially if I like have my kid with me and he, he needs to drink, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I try to have the reusable stuff, but I'm not going to kill myself. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I need to buy a bottle when I'm out. Yeah. Especially in a country which has so few water fountains all over the place, which, yeah, you know, I've gotten, I think I finally adjusted to that a little bit, but I still find it, I'm so used to just having like really? water. Yeah, just free water fountains just all over the place. Like if you're working somewhere yeah. in the U.S., you know, you just there's a water fountain, you just find one. Sure. And, you know, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I guess that's something I've never really picked up on. Yeah. Yeah. Next time you visit Georgia, yeah, yeah, take, yeah take a sure. look around and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'll see more water fountains. Maybe that's kind of a trivial example, but uh, yeah. So I think you're right. I think our tendency to think in those black and white kind of binary terms, yeah, you know, can these kind of polarized terms, um, that it. It, yeah, it can hold us back from making intelligent, like, or, you know, for making nuanced decisions that are like, well, yeah, some, I will do some things to, you know, try to help with the climate climate problem, but I, I also don't need to, I don't need to put, I don't need to put the whole thing on my shoulders. Like, I don't necessarily have to feel, you know, awful all the time uh, for, you know, using energy and for using, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, there are things you can do. Yeah, so I like I like that answer of you know do do what you can and be comfortable with doing what you can. I think another part of the puzzle is um and I was talking with Cameron Brick, who's a social psychologist here, you know, yeah. a couple months ago, is that uh, often the folks who maybe feel less inclined to participate in the kind of solutions to the climate problem, um, they have a strong sense of identity and they they don't want to they don't want to identify with you know they perceive uh, environmental stuff as like well that's very kind of hippie left lefty kind of like and they just yeah. don't like those people yeah, yeah <laughs> they yeah. don't want to be associated with those folks yeah, yeah, yeah. so they just pick their you know they, they have an internal sense of like what group they want to be a part of yeah and that's where it starts and then they decide what kind of actions they're going to take based yeah. on what is my what does my group do yeah i think people hate thinking about themselves as in that way but i think we all have a really strong tendency to behaving in exactly that oh that way. we are tribal yeah we are very tribal and you know all you have to do is go to something like the agu uh, and you know over here you know atmospheric scientists talk about oceanographers or geologists really? talk about oh yeah what yeah. do they say <laughs> <laughs> mickey mouse what science you, what do you say <laughs> good god <laughs> ouch <laughs> no we all you know and, and you kind of you get it, it happens in university when you do your like undergraduate degree mm. you know I think I think I think the perception as a chemist you get told is that you know physics is the real science <laughs> and, and everything else is just applications of physics so so then you as a chemist I think you're, you're told that uh, and then you're told that biology is just you know coloring in or something or like applied that. applied chemistry applied chemistry yeah there's an XKCD about this where there's a scale of like <laughs> yeah. all these different scientists and then yeah. the, and then the mathematician is way over off, <laughs> off by themselves going oh hey I didn't see you all over there <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, no. I'm a complete. I'm in a completely pure field. I'm yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, you guys just use some. <laughs> you're dealing with the squishy, weird, real world. Like I don't, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, what do you, what do you waste your? You need to be thinking about these obscure geometric patterns and geometric, you know, forms and yeah. curved space time and things like. Oh, that, even that's probably too applied. That's that's too like you know, <laughs> that's too general relativity. Um, yeah, so you uh, you told me that you went to Bristol for your yeah. undergrad, right? Yeah. And where, right. where did you grow up? Um, you I grew up largely in Bristol. My yeah. mum and my mum's from Zimbabwe. My dad's Scottish. They met in Zimbabwe when my dad worked on the railways there. And uh, I was born in Scotland, but they moved back to Zimbabwe. So I grew up there for the first five years, and then uh, moved to Bristol. Okay, so you were in Zimbabwe for. First five, first years, five yeah. years of my life. Yeah. Do you have any early memories? Or, uh, um, maybe I vaguely remember being broken into and oh. my toys being like gone. Oh man! Um, toys. And um, but yeah, not really. I don't really remember much. I, I remember being I, I generally. I, I think happy, and and I think my mum and dad enjoyed it there. Do you ever go back there now? Um. Yeah. So. We were there last year, last September, yeah, this time last year. Um, Well, yeah, September last year. I took my um, wife to visit my uncle who still lives there. And we went on safari and went to see the um, history. So there's lots of old ruins of uh, some big old settlements. um, Really interesting. Um, um, Yeah. Is he still living around where you were living or is he in a different, uh, different part no, we lived in Harare, and my uncle lives in Bulawayo, but that's where my mum grew up, so and where my mum and dad met as well. Mm. So my uncle took us on a, a tour of Bulawayo, showing us that's where your dad used to live there, mm. this is where we grew up, this is where your mum lived, this is your mum and dad's first house okay. over there. So it's a place which, you know, has um, gone through a lot of change, and, and sadly, over the last... 20 years, um, a lot of downward negative change. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, like what, what sort of thing? Well, so unemployment is um, catastrophic. They um, have a, um, a currency now which is um, in a real sorry state, but it's much better than their old currency which went through hyperinflation. Uh, the the in, Yeah, so the... In, Inflation rate was at about one trillion percent. Oh gosh! Um, the inflation. Oh man, that's like the inflation rate is. We just need to reset this. <laughs> yeah. So we just need to so so yeah. So so and, and sadly at the moment Venezuela is going through the same problem. Oh. I think Venezuela's inflation rate is like a million percent or a thousand percent or something. It's like an economic freefall. Yeah. Like... So you've got very limited options. But what then? What they did in Zimbabwe was. Um, just use the US dollar yeah. and the South African rand wow. and then a few years ago they um, introduced a Zimbabwe bond note which is supposed to be capped to the US dollar mm. but then the problem is like the government have been issuing new bond notes which basically devalues them oh, to the okay. US dollar and and you, you, you kind of you start to learn a little bit about what is the meaning of money in a in a country like Zimbabwe, um, interestingly, at the moment most transactions are done via mobile phone. Believe it or not, yeah. you can like text people 
money effectively. Oh, right. So so like it's not it's not the level of Bitcoin, but um, uh, currencyless transactions are the. So if you want to buy something, you have your phone out and you're you have like, your phone okay, out I'll, and I'll text you this person, amount. Yeah, the person has a, a special number, and so the company that kind of operate this charge a commission of like ten percent or something. So mm. are making huge amounts. Yes. A bit sad. Uh, so it's really it's really sad. It's it's a very sad, sad, sad uh, situation. I, I remember not, this is like an alternative to a bank, right? This is like yeah, you know, yeah, Because yeah. the, the the banks, I guess, you know, the banks you know, don't have any money. Are, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just have your like a credit system done. The, the whatever company is kind of keeping up with yeah. the amount of credit. So yeah, a, a, a new bank has popped up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, an effective bank. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, it's crazy. It, it's really crazy. And so they've had presidential elections um, uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, actually, which have been challenged. And it's all looking really sad. Um, mm. uh, you know, and it, it's a real shame because it's a country that was very prosperous and um, was always great to, to visit. And, you know, I always did feel like it was, you know... Um, home from home really mm. yeah like you had a strong yeah. even though you, you moved away when you were quite young yeah. you had a strong association with it and yeah had a, and you... I had my grandparents there so we would go every other summer okay. we would go yeah. and spend the summer there um, so yeah so you must have a lot of you know memories growing up there. yeah I guess when you go back you you know you were talking about your uncle taking you on tour but you could give somebody a tour as well yeah, you I could say this is where we played this and this is where that's right you know, yeah, yeah 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 the, we used to try and demolish termite mounds. Mm. Very hard work. What methods did you use? To... Well, yeah. Water <laughs> yeah. and um, trees and twigs and you know, try and bash them down. But nice. uh, yeah, they are very hardy. Um, yeah, so what's the... Uh, do you have some, some friends from there that you still keep up with? Uh, not really. A lot of my like you know friends from... Like, play school and things like that I actually do now live in the UK but mm-hmm. you know we never really kept kept in touch right. but there are a lot of Zimbabweans now in the UK um, a lot of Zimbabweans in South Africa mm. um, yeah so do you ever um, so at some point you moved back to your family moved back yeah. to the UK yeah yeah and so you were about five or yeah. so you said when that happens and then you were around Bristol yeah so then yeah so then I grew up in Bristol hence the slight Bristolian accent, um, uh, and I can really talk Bristolian if you really want. I can fit in proper and get on a bus, and I'll be all right. I'll be safe. <laughs> or I can. Uh, I've I've tried to to learn to speak um, less like a, a Bristolian. Was that, so it was a conscious thing. You said I need to. I need to. I I didn't. I, I, I think because I had my mum's you know Zimbabwean accent. My dad's got a very thick Scottish accent. So I always had a, mm. a mixed like you know environment. Um, and I think I had a very weird accent when I was like in primary school. Um, mm. And then, yeah, no, I, I think I've always had sort of a, a mellow southwest mm. accent, really. But some of my yeah. friends, when I go and visit them, I always, I, always, I do, I do get a bit of a slip, chuckle. Slip back. Oh, or, or well, like, I, I slip back into the, yeah, like, you know, I, I think everybody does that. You have, like, a right. sympathetic, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. your accent tilts one way or the other, depending on who the people you're around. That's right, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, my, I, my son has a, a really interesting 
so he can switch back and forth between US and UK like uh, oh right uh, yeah yeah uh, kind, of, kind of more American versus more uh, you know this part of England you know yeah. kind of southeast England estuary you know so he, he can do both and he you know switches back and forth and you know uh, he, so whenever we have like some a friend of ours you know from England come over to the house you know, you can hear it. He'll switch to the, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, so he once told me like, don't worry, dad, I'll speak American at home. So you'll understand <laughs> me. So you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, I'll pronounce my T's and stuff and I'm like, yeah. I won't drop, I won't drop them. Yeah. So he's got a cool kind of blended accent as well. Yeah. Those are always fascinating. I, I love those. Um, I watched the, uh, this is totally just anecdotal, but, uh, and, and doesn't mean anything, but um, I watched the launch of the solar probe a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, the the satellite that's going to sit, you know, yeah. as close to the sun as any satellite has ever yeah. uh, ever been located. And uh, one of the scientists uh, had this really fascinating English plus uh, plus Southern California accent. Oh right, and like in individual words, she would switch back and forth. Yeah, and I, I asked one of my friends who's living, you know, in, in Southern California. She was watching at the same time. I said, "Do you hear that?" And she's like, "I don't know. She just sounds British to me." And <laughs> <laughs> because there were enough words in there that sounded British that to somebody, you know, but it was very clear, very clearly blended. She was hopping back and forth between Southern England and, you know, so uh, yeah, I love those British, those mixed accents. Yeah. Um, and I heard one that was um, a Russian guy who learned English in Mexico. That was oh wow, that was really yeah. cool. Yeah, that <laughs> so would that was be. Great. Yeah, interesting. Um, when when I, I I worked in Boulder in Colorado for a bit at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, the big one up on the hill. Were you up? I on was now. I was not on the the Mesa Lab. Mm. I was uh, downtown in the foothills. Yeah. Um And uh, when I would go to the, the gym, um, if I like talk to people, people would be like, "Oh, you're Australian." Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, no, I'm not Australian. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Americans aren't. I'm, I'm going to broadly overgeneralize here, <laughs> right. you know, but Americans aren't that great at picking out the different British yeah, accents. Yeah, I guess if you don't sound like you're you're like a, I don't know Hugh Grant, then uh, yeah, you can't be British. Yeah. yeah, there's the posh one, and then the like. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a London one, but it's like... Oh, a, Cockney. Like a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, there's like the yeah, posh okay. one and the Cockney <laughs> one. And that's, that's about as good as we can... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for yeah. most Americans, we're like, that's British, right? That's Those are the two. There are yeah. obviously like tons and tons of different varieties of the accent that like, yeah. I've gotten the, the privilege to hear yeah. you know, over the years. I even think like Scottish, probably most folks in the US couldn't like distinguish between oh, know, that's... Scottish and... Wow. Which now to me, I'm like, how... How could you? How could you miss that? But me, ten years ago, yeah, I probably would have been like, oh, I'm not sure if is that Scottish or English. I don't know, but it's so clear to me now. I, yeah. you know, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine. No. So, so what did your, so your folks, um, so your dad was in, um, working in the mines. He had something. No, to do he worked in the railways. Really? Uh, sorry. Yeah. Man. So, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and, and my mum, she worked as a. Um, Guestimator is what I would refer yeah, to it. Guestimator. Quantity surveyor. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. You guestimate, you need a thousand bricks or something like that. That would be a fun job title, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And but then and then they they moved to the UK and my dad uh, moved into hydraulic engineering and and things like that. Mm. And my mum was a stay at home mum for a while and then went to university because she hadn't gone to university. And did a degree in radiology and kind of actually you know there are quite a, a f- 
there's quite a high need for radiologists, but she decided to get into teaching instead and worked in a, a local college teaching higher ed um, uh, or further ed and uh, now works at my old high school. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So, it's... so you started, uh, when did you start kind of getting more involved with with science or when did you start kind of thinking you might tilt in that direction? And... I think I always, so my uncle, so my mum's brother, my uncle Michael, um, uh, you know, did a PhD, did postdocs in Sweden and Rochester and he worked at the University of Texas, Austin and then he ended up at the University of Georgia, Athens and yeah. I remember visiting him with my mum and my little sister um, in 1996 or something like that. So I would have just been starting secondary school. Mm. So you're visiting him? Visiting in, him. In Georgia? In Georgia. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we did went you, out. Did you say 1996? Yeah, something yeah, like that. Okay. 96, yeah. So I think that was when I was just starting high school. And I was like, yeah, cool, you mm. know. I think he showed us around his lab and... I thought, yeah, science, yeah, that's quite cool. <laughs> and I think from then I, I kind of knew, well, I'd, I'd want to go and do something, go to university, definitely, yeah. do science, mm. but didn't really know what. Mm. And I think by the end of secondary school, I was almost convinced that I wanted to do geochemistry and I wanted to find minerals and metals and work in the mining industry and then I got, uh, I was very lucky to, through family, friends, through through our connections in Zimbabwe, to organise a, a month with some family friends who work in the mining industry. So um, a great guy called Andy Brown um, took me under his wing and took me underground for the first time. So went to visit a, um, a gold mine. 1800 meters underground uh, and then I sort of really the cock tick uh, the yeah I worked out what Andy did and Andy's company was subcontracted by mines to go and assess after there'd been damage and so what happened is there'd been an earthquake which had started a fire and so they went down to sort of survey and put in some new struts and things like this and that so happens if, enough that you can make a whole... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It turns yeah. out there are enough accidents that you can sort of have... Uh, but, and, and I think, I mean, he's won lots of awards for sort of health and safety and, you know, safety in mines and, and great, great guy. Um, but, yeah, yeah. So he was a mentor. Yeah, you know. but then also, you know, going underground after there'd been an earthquake and a fire, the sort of... It didn't really hit me till I was 1,800 metres underground that yeah this is a dangerous yeah. place <laughs> and Did uh, you're rethinking the yeah <laughs> the and then I, I think the the experience <laughs> um too much drinking even as a 17 year old i couldn't keep up uh, i thought geez <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah this is yeah mining is probably not for me it looked <laughs> it looked glamorous but it's hard work and uh yeah I so then I, 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 don't, I don't think I've heard mining look glamorous before. I think it's the first time I've oh, heard. Oh, I, I, but... maybe romantic. Yeah, <laughs> ro- you know, that romantic uh, idea of, you know, you just dig around and there you go. You've, you've worked mm. physically hard and you're rewarded for it. Or you've used some intuition and some, you know, knowledge about, you know, chemistry. And you've, you've mm. worked out where all the gold is. I, 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 
I, I yeah, I, I I had it in my head that that was uh, romantic, maybe. I could see that. Yeah, you're going into the earth and extracting useful things. Like, yeah, from, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah. So then I I decided not to kind of follow uh, mining as a as a as a university choice, but but still thought maybe something geology based. So started off studying geology and chemistry at Bristol, and then it got to drawing fossils mm. and then I decided this wasn't a science uh, ooh. <laughs> any other disciplines you want to like cut down or you got you got oceanography yeah. <laughs> you got like you call biology coloring in already. yeah yeah but we're, yeah. we're just gonna go in it I mean maths isn't really I mean, a science <laughs> so it's just you know let's just go like that on, the, on the rampage cutting down every discipline yeah, yeah, every field yeah, yeah. no um um, I I really I really I and mean, there were some brilliant lecturers in geology. I yeah. just I just didn't I didn't really I, I loved geochemistry and I would have loved to have done something with that. But actually, chemistry was was also something I really loved. So quite glad to have switched into chemistry. Really liked the organic side of things mm. as well as the um, physical chemistry, and met my. Um, PhD supervisor, he lectured us atmospheric chemistry um, in Bristol. There? In Bristol, and uh, and he was just a fantastic mm. lecturer, fantastic sort of um, yeah, inspirational character. Just you know, brilliant. Who did you say it was? A guy called Dudley Shawcross. Okay, yeah. Um, so and I think he he ended up as well like doing um a master's in education maybe even a, a phd in education yeah um he certainly did his master's in education and has written a number of uh you know papers uh, on teaching and, mm. and how to engage with students particularly in maths and, and physical sciences so because i i ended up not having done a level maths so i had to do this um special maths class at bristol and Dudley um, had sort of organised that. So I, I knew him from my first year and then in my third year um, did a research project with him on atmospheric chemistry. So, so yeah, it was kind of... Uh, and then you stayed on there? To and then I stayed on there, yeah. So I did a PhD joint with the Met Office. So I had a, a Met Office supervisor who now works, um, I think he works like two days a week in Bristol. So that's nice to kind of see that that relationship has uh has continued yeah did you spend some time in exeter as well did you go down yeah there? i did so i i ended up just driving to exeter quite a bit and um and did a few weeks where i'd kind of go there um every day and hmm. maybe monday to thursday but um yeah and now you know so that was in 2006 2007 2008 2009 and then um, yeah, still work with the Met Office now. So I was down there in July. Um, you know, lots of friendly faces, lots of familiar faces, lots yeah. of new faces as well. In a much bigger building now than. Um, no, it, so it, was, it was it was in that building. Oh, the big, yeah. the giant so one. I think looks they like a moved, ship. Yeah, I think they moved there maybe early two thousand. Oh, okay, all right. But, but yeah, well, well before two thousand and six. So you were already that building was there already. And you yeah, were going down there. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this massive, it's got like a water feature running through the center That's of it. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, With, um, yeah no, it's a, it's a nice, it's really, well, it's a really nice building and it's a, it's a really great bunch of people to work with down there. Yeah, so what, um, it sounds like you 
enjoyed your PhD experience, or what, what, what was that like for you? Like, what was the process yeah. of going through it? So I think, it, I mean, to get to the PhD in the first place was a bit stochastic, and the first project I worked on was something that after a year, I kind of said to Dudley, you know, I'm not sure I'm cut out for mm. this. I think there's something oh, else okay. I sh- would be better suited at. The project, or were you feeling a little the project, unsure about... Yeah, it was um, looking at atmospheric dispersion, so doing um, experiments releasing inert compounds similar to CFCs, really, um, in the air, and then collecting samples of the air to quantify how... The, the presence of these compounds. Mm, so it was actually like going out and doing field mm, work. And... Yeah, so we did experiments sort of the Langford to Bristol. So Langford is where the vet school in Bristol is. So it's about 10, 15 miles outside of Bristol mm. city centre uh, experiments. So we would release the gas and then sample it downwind. Uh, and it was one of these things where it required quite a lot of logistical planning and it was frustrating because... Langford was like southwest of Bristol, and you usually get like southwesterly winds, mm. apart from when you're like ready to do an experiment. Where <laughs> Except you for when is, you need them. Yeah, easterlies or, <laughs> or like high pressure systems. So, <laughs> so, so I only managed to do like two or three experiments on that range. And then the group was doing more experiments um, in the urban environment. There were a couple of funded projects. Um, so we we went to London quite a lot um, uh, and scared the police quite a bit as well. Carrying They're using ar- just chemicals. Well, the, carrying around big know. cylinders like polished stainless steel. They look like atomic bombs, really, <laughs> they do. I'm not surprised they were scared. <laughs> but we learned quite quickly. you have some paperwork with you? Like, this is, we did, no, we did this in the end, like... yeah. Not the first time. And we learned as well that with a high-vis jacket, you can, <laughs> you can get away with quite a lot. Good yeah. tip. Yeah. yeah. But then, and then I decided, with consultation of my my supervisor Dudley, that I I try and get into something that was a bit more chemical because that was really um, atmospheric physics. You know, you're kind of using these traces to to test boundary layer theory, mm. yeah. which is really interesting, and I, I still am really interested in dispersion. But um, but yeah, so then I could. I, I, I tried to get a bit more into how molecules are degraded in a in a more theoretical way and 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 that's something that I, I really enjoy actually because it's it's much more chemistry mm. and I kind of mm. felt a bit more comfortable thinking about um, electrons moving around mm. and rearrangements yeah. that was your your home you felt comfortable yeah around, that's so. it yeah 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 it's funny how we develop those things there's like you know in principle you and I could work on a lot of different problems but we just we have these these instinctive like oh that's where I feel comfortable I yeah like, I like this sort of problem and I feel like I would be good at this sort of problem or that sort of problem yeah that's right yeah it's all yeah. it's all subjective but we know something about like what our brains respond to for whatever reason yeah well, it's, yeah it's interesting how you you do have a preference for for, for these problems and yeah and it's it's a very privileged uh, problem to to have to like but but at the same time you kind of need to respect that instinct, don't you? You can't. It wastes a lot of energy if you're like constantly fighting that instinct, working on something that isn't engaging you yeah, in a certain way. For sure. And um, you know, may, I don't know. Maybe we sound really privileged saying that because I'm sure you know there's 
I think most folks have to push against that, right? They're, they're oh, gotta, yeah. Like, you got to go to work and you got to do something that you don't necessarily you know, want to do. Yeah. But you got to do it to stay to stay alive. And that's um, that's one of the privileges that we get to enjoy. And I think it's, it's important to recognize like how, how special that is. It is. Every now and then when you, you, know, you kind of get a bit down about, I don't know, proposals being rejected yeah. or things like this, it is really, you know, um, humbling to just think, well... You know, ninety nine percent of the time you're doing things that you want to do, yeah. Um, and there are very few jobs where you get to do that. And like for you, you've got you know you can go down to the the chemistry department and yeah. you know work with great people. You can sit here in your beautiful college office and look outside, and it's very, it's uh yeah it's that's something we should appreciate. And it it puts responsibility on us too, isn't it? To like, yeah, you know, try to you know do good work, try to get it out there, try to you know add some something of value to, yeah. you know, to the, not Oops. only science, but something that will help, like, you know, people and society at large and overall. Yeah, so you, that's, uh, that's great you were able to find, so you were able to do a different project that, you know, was more in line with um, your interests and kind of what you responded, what you felt like you could really sink your teeth into. And Yeah, and, and I think it, it happened because I was reading, so the, the one thing I was really good at was reading papers. Mm. And I loved, and I still love reading papers. Yeah, I, that's and, a good skill because so many of them are written so badly. Yeah, yeah, I know, and it's something that like a, a lot of people in, in, in you know, my group are always like, well, have you read this paper? And, you know, it, it's certainly, it's a really good skill to have because it is really difficult, as you say, yeah. you know some papers you know people really do struggle to to kind of get through but yeah, yeah for whatever reason maybe because i don't read them completely i just mm. sort of skim read mm. them um but yeah so so i was reading a nature paper and i was like oh wow this is you know really interesting result and their their observation was that um the levels of this important atmospheric detergent uh, this radical that destroys compounds was about a factor of ten higher in the Amazon than um, than the models suggested. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, hello, you know, alarm bells. Something's fundamentally wrong with our understanding. Mm. And then, as as you you do, you kind of don't just report something like that. You say, "Well, and this is how we fixed it." And so I looked at their fix, and I was like, "Well, you know, we were talking about the laws of thermodynamics earlier." Well, this didn't obey the laws of conservation of mass. Oh, right. So I was like, you know, yeah. Well, this certainly isn't it. This might be how they fix it in their model, but this isn't the truth. This it's, isn't reality. It's like duct tape. Some, yeah. Get some duct tape over the problem. So, yeah. so I just really got to town on it. And, and, and there were a couple of other, like, um, of my peers working in different universities, so in Caltech and, and in Germany, and we were all sort of working on this problem at the same time, and uh, it was quite fun actually. Because then there was a, there were a couple of guys that when I'd go to a conference, you know, I'd be like, "Oh, Fabian, oh, Domenico, how's it going?" You know, mm. so it was neat. It was really neat. Did you get to meet the authors? Or do you know? Oh the yeah, authors yeah, the, like, yeah, you know, yeah. That, that paper. And... Yeah, 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 yeah. So I um, imagine they were they receptive to the idea that like they, they, I think they, must they have... yeah they they also you know they came up with a. a, a a bodge but you know that's you know you have to it was doing something rather than just doing nothing and then quantifying right. so and we've done we've done that as well in, in some of the studies that we've done we, yeah. you uncover something you know is wrong uh, but you know you try and attempt yes. to just push forward a bit rather than say well it's wrong you know 
Yeah, you you attempt to fix it, and you put a post-it note on it saying, yeah. this probably isn't the, yeah. the real solution, but it's okay for right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then you put the paper out there, and you hope somebody like yourself reads it and goes, hang on, <laughs> I've got an idea <laughs> for how to do this better. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's the process. That's the process. Yeah, the, I like that you mentioned the kind of community aspect of science, you know, getting to know yeah. different people working in different circles and that's yeah. such an important part of it and that's part of why we still have physical meetings yeah uh, even though there are some good arguments as to why that's not great from a carbon perspective but sure. there's no substitute for getting people in a room yeah, and yeah. you know building that community yeah um that we, we we're not able to like do our best work completely you know kind of divorced from each other in that way you know we need each other we need to we need that community we need to be able yeah. to talk with each other yeah. and go have coffee and go you know watch each other's body language as we say stuff yeah so that's that's really important still um and, and there's there's gonna there's got to be a good way to balance that of like still having physical meetings but maybe having remote participation options and stuff yeah like that, and I, so, so i think i think if if you want to learn you know what people are doing then remote participation is is, is a great way yeah you know? yeah um but i think if you want to like really push the boundaries you do have to have people physically together yeah um uh, i think there's something about being out of your environment that like mm. means your brain you know just works subtly differently yes. you're not clock watching thinking about which emails i need to reply to mm. next yes. you know yes you are you are there for that period of time to to engage in the pursuit of science yeah for sure yeah. So after you were done at Bristol, where did you head then? So I then came to Cambridge for a postdoc yeah. with John Pyle, uh, which was uh, funded by the National Centre for Atmospheric Science. Uh, and um, I had that for a few years and then managed to get a Herschel Smith uh, fellowship. So Herschel Smith was a uh, an organic chemist. He actually was um, um, a, a, an alumni of Emmanuel College. And uh, he developed the, um, I think, uh, the synthetic pathways to produce the drugs which are used in um, uh, contraceptives uh, and made millions. Yeah. Uh, and so has left millions to the University of Cambridge, mm. to I think Oxford as well, possibly, and to, to Harvard or to, to Princeton and Harvard. Um, and, and those provide... Uh, the opportunities for funding postdocs to work on their own projects so so i had that and as part of that i said that i would go and work in the us for a while so went to to boulder and then in 2014 um started a lectureship in the department of chemistry so so i've been in cambridge basically on and off since 2009 so this is my yeah ninth year <laughs> you're starting to feel Dug in, dug in now. Starting yeah, to like... no, it does feel more like home. That's mm. for sure. Like, yeah. So I spent more time in Cambridge as an academic than I did at, in Bristol. Right. You know, uh, doing my undergrad and PhD. So yeah, that's great. Do we um? Do we want to finish? Uh, since it's uh, I don't know when you usually have lunch. Yeah, we're, we're, I was, was kind of approaching lunchtime. Yeah. Now. Do we want to finish off with a quick? It's like a lightning, you know, lightning round. You can just like give your quick yeah summaries of that. That's that sound good. Yeah, sure. And try that. Yeah. And we'll finish up like that. Yeah. And cool. thanks again for your time. This has been yeah, great. Yeah. It's been really right, fun. Great. Thank you. Um. So, 
don't feel pressured again to give like you don't have to give you know the, the perfect answer just kind of yeah. your your reaction your response to these so it's um and I steal these questions from other podcasts. Okay. You know, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's something you've learned about science like in the process of you know, getting to know it and going through it? Do you have a, a, a takeaway? Like what's something you've learned? And it doesn't have to summarize everything. It can just be, here's one thing I've learned about science and how it works and your, your uh, position in it. Or Yeah, okay. Well, I, I guess I've learned about science is it's the pursuit of the truth. It's not the truth itself. Mm. Um, it's, it's an active active thing it's yeah, a, yeah yeah you know and and it evolves yes. you know so we, we we you know we we develop a an understanding it, I, I think maths you know this is where maths is different right yes but it, but in science they can prove a theorem and as long as their logic is sound you know, yeah. in that system that's yeah. it that's in that, that system they have proven it that's <laughs> it right works that way whereas in in the in 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 science in the physical sciences there are elements of gray uh, and and actually, when you come from reading textbooks or this is a fact, you know, to them being told, well, you know, this this works under these assumptions, but actually, there's this system here where it doesn't work. Yes, that's right. And, and I think that was really uh, that was really important. Yeah. yeah. So you, yeah, you learned about it more as a verb, more like an active, yeah. evolving thing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about something you've learned about academia, which you know that that contains more than just science, right? That's all kind of academic. And it could be like working in academia or um, something you've, uh, or the culture of there, it, or yeah, how, to, how to survive in it. The, even though I've made some derogatory comments to, to colleagues <laughs> in, in different fields, there are no soft subjects. Yay. Everything everything <laughs> is equally uh, challenging, yeah. and it's f- filled with equally brilliant people who really are brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah and you get a, that is another way we're, we, we, you can get a real sense of that, you know, working in a place like this and, yeah. you know, you can go to college meetings and, meet, you know, you can meet people and get exposed to different fields and get a real sense of like, no, no, they're, they're working, you know, there are folks who are, you know, working just as hard as, yeah. as folks in the scientists, sciences and they're digesting huge amounts of information and synthesizing yeah. huge amounts of information. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and it's just that sometimes the things you're thinking about are... Um, how do we develop a sense of ourselves and what's, what does identity mean and you know just throwing out a, a possible example sure. of like yeah what about field work what's something you've learned about field work um, planning 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 yeah yeah um, <laughs> you can never do you can never do too much planning but then things are going to go wrong which you will never have planned for yes so so maybe in some sense the thing I've learned is to just roll with the roll with it you know, um, things are going to happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Try and try and stay chilled out when uh, things go wrong. Yes, like where we started with, you know, with the, the, one of the first things we said in this episode is like, yeah, just do what you can, but not everything's going to work. You're not going to get to everything. Yeah, you just have to learn learn how to go with it. Absolutely. How about writing? Do you like writing, or what's something you learned about writing? What's I think with writing, you need to dedicate time. I think that's okay. the key thing with writing. Have blocks. Yeah. Like just put put aside a few hours, you know. Uh, so S- smart is the the acronym. You know, really try and do things specific, measurable. Um, I can't remember what the other a, bits of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, timely. Yeah, I forget what a uh, a r. Yeah, <laughs> resourced. You know, so make sure you got some coffee and biscuits there for your writing. 
don't don't then have the excuse. Oh, I'm just gonna get up and make a coffee mm. now. Right. Bring the coffee with you. Bring it with you. Put it on your calendar. <coughs> Excuse me. It's in tight. How about outreach? Because you, you do it for a bit of outreach too, uh, yeah, here, here yeah. and there. What's something you learned about that? Or... Um, children will say the uh, most random things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You'll never be able to prepare for the questions of an eight-year-old. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you have to be quick on your quick on your feet. Try to say something relevant. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, and the last thing is like. I like to ask this pair of questions, um, and again, this is another one I stole from a different podcast. What's um, something you love about your job and something you hate about your job, and you can feel free to answer in uh, whichever um, order you want. <laughs> I love the fact that it's different. Um, you know, every day is different. We're working on different problems uh, and working with a great team of people. I love that. Yeah. Uh, what do I dislike about my job? Um... Probably, I mean, yeah, I mean, not to sound too moany, it's the sort of trying to get funding side of it. I think that's the... Yeah, that's the, a grind. That's the, a grind for sure. The pre- Yeah, and the pressure. So when you become a group leader, you, you kind of do feel a bit of pressure to keep things going. Yes. You know, I think if you're on your own, you know, the pressure is to keep yourself afloat. And then when you've got people that you really want to keep... Yeah, and there's a there's pressure there, and you know they're they're relying on you, and you've got that pressure. Yeah, and I and I think yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, so so that that's the thing. You know, if if I was told every every year for the next ten years you're going to have this much money, that would that would be much nicer personally. Mm. But if you had a baseline, you know, if you had yeah. like, here's the here's the baseline that you could count on. Yeah, yeah, that would be a that would there would be a calming. That would be <laughs> calming. Yeah, yes. exactly. But yeah. then, you know, it's the carrot and the stick and, you know, I guess the way that the funding works is it's the stick approach of trying to get us to be more productive. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe the carrots would, would be better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like carrots. I like yeah. carrots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like carrots. Oh. If, um, if you could have a, one new observation, you know, anywhere, what would that what would that be? Like if you could have one new kind of observing platform, you can put it anywhere, Ooh. do anything you want. It's kind of your your toy to play with and observe what you want. Well, I I mean I've really enjoyed working with the fam one four six. Um, so, I mean I would I would want to to continue to use that really yeah. and and just use it more yeah. Got it already. You just yeah. want to you want to keep playing with that. Yeah, and keep taking I, it new new places. I think it's a good toy. Yeah, I'd <laughs> like to keep using it. Yeah, how do you feel? Good. Feel good. Anything yeah. else you want to talk about? No. Yeah. No, I'm good. Just, yeah, I'm good. Lunchtime. Yeah. No. Well, thank you for doing this. This has been really interesting. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for your time. I, I really liked it. This has been great. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think people will really appreciate it too. You know. We've yeah. Had, we've had a pretty wide ranging yeah. conversation. Yeah. Talked about lots of different stuff. And, yeah, and yeah. thanks for being really open too. You know, you didn't mind talking about it. No. No. And, no. Uh, no. Yeah. Insulting fields around <laughs> along the way. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, I, you know. I, I clearly haven't done any media training else. <laughs> no. 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 It's all. It's all. It's. It's good fun. It's it's understood. Thanks, Alex. Cool. That was great. Thank you. There you have it. My conversation with Alexander Archibald. Again, you can find Alex on Twitter. A Tarchi is his handle. A T Archie. 
is one way you can spell that. And you can look up his profile at the University of Cambridge. He's got a departmental page there. Thanks again to Dr. Archibald for his time. I really appreciated it and really had a good chat. If you want to follow the podcast, uh, we are at ClimateSciPod on Twitter. I'm Dan Jones Ocean. That's my Twitter handle. So please do feel free to send feedback, things you would like to hear, um, things you would like to see in the future. Well, not see, but hear. Yeah, okay. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye? Bye. Right. Bye.